This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this, the Vaughn Ballcap episode, we sit down with newly retired pro skier Dakota Blackhorse Von Jess here in his hometown of Bend, Oregon. Dakota, or Dak as he's most often called, has been on the scene for over a decade. And in that time, Dakota won the support of his peers and fans as a skier skier. The man is nothing but energy and intellect wound into a five foot nine inch body that ultimately became a sprinting force. And if you've wondered why the Vaughn in Black Horse Von Jess is lowercase and hyphenated, it's connected to the Black Horse, not the Jess. Have a listen. Okay. All right. So I am recording. Perfect. Okay. So let's, uh, <laughs> okay. So I emailed your friend Pat O'Brien. Which you did not tell me. That's okay, right? That's it's, part no, of it's the, totally good. Behind the scenes, I need help with questions. I do that a lot. I email people. You can take that. Turn text. that off. We'll see if it's. I know it's not a kid. It's Akio. Oh, oh it is. Just kidding. It's Akio's girlfriend. Is it really? Uh huh. So what'd she say? Uh, she said we we operate on like a one day delay. Oh yeah, dude. Ask her to go like ride or something. Uh, <clears throat> this says. She did her first C-section on a cow um, at midnight on Saturday. That is super badass. See, that's where that's yeah. the person I should be interviewing right now. Yeah, probably. I want you to introduce yourself. It's usually how I start things. I'll let people sort of give their little brief intro. Um, okay. My, my name is Dakota Blackhorse Von Jess. I know that's a little bit of a mouthful. I'm um, going to get to that. Oh, yeah. We, I'm sure. I am from Bend, Oregon. Well, I say I'm from Bend, Oregon. I've lived here since 2000. Went to high school here. Um, came back here after college. I turned 32 in March. Technically, I was 31 when I retired from the sport of Nordic skiing. <laughs> People like to call me an old man. I was definitely a master skier. What technically is a master skier? 30. Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. For some reason, I thought it was 35, but okay. M1. Check those results. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's uh, The reason I bring that up is because it's a running joke among many aspiring professional skiers that they're never going to compete as masters but there are quite a few top nordic skiers torin Koos, andy newell chris freeman you know, that i can think of right off the top of my head that oh, yeah. competed at a very high level as masters so all right so it's m1 is 30 to 34 Wow. Yeah, so I'm just trying to think off the top of my head, right? Yeah, you need to rattle off some names. There's Freeman, right? Yep. Who's killing the M2 class this past year. I think he's 37. Yeah, that makes sense. Brian Gregg, I think, is like low 30s. Uh, he's several years older than I am. So okay. he must be an M2. I don't know. We'll have to fact you, check. <laughs> fist stock him. But you could be literally, I mean, like... One of the premier M. I mean, not to belittle anything here, because we're going to get to like your prowess on the on the ski course, but uh -huh. arguably one of the most dominant M one skiers. <laughs> what? It's so funny when you, not you personally, but you proverbially, we um, associate individuals as like in classifications. It's like we we whittle it down to make smaller groups so that way you can be a bigger fish yeah, totally. in a smaller That's pond. What you do. I mean people yeah. like I'm turning fifty people and I haven't done a ski race in a couple of years. People are like, oh this is the year. 
you'll be on the low end of the age group. I just don't know if I have that type of psyche, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go kill it against the 54 and a half year olds. Right. It's It becomes especially difficult. Well, I don't know, not for everyone necessarily, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, but certainly for me, because I've put some thought and energy into this in the last four or five months. I have competed at my highest level and I've won some significant races. I'm, I still love competition, but I don't think I need to win anymore because winning will always have an asterisk next to it for me. Why? What do you mean that? What do you uh, mean about, yeah, so, what's the asterisk? So let's say I win an M1 or an M2 or like I win the Great Nordine. Mm -hmm. You know, those are significant accomplishments for people for whom those are significant accomplishments. But when you're on the downslide of your athletic career, you know, from a you were a professional. Mm -hmm. um, it just the the import of competition becomes less about winning and more about competing. But we'll get to that later, too. That has to do with my whole ethos on racing. Okay, gosh, there's going to be a lot here. So Three parts. Wow, we're <laughs> going to make this a three-part series. You started ski racing. Rewind a little bit. I think in Pocatello. I did, Idaho. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, how old were you, and how did you get involved with that? Uh, yeah, I think I was in eighth grade. And you would think I would know this better, having Sorry. told the story. If you the know. story probably changes a little bit. Every time. Right. Uh, my best friend from Idaho... This guy named Michael Jordan, white guy with blonde hair and blue eyes, totally unrelated. And I had some friends, girls, that were into Nordic skiing, and we didn't really know what it was. He was taking alpine lessons. I was like, snow? What is this? Because I grew up in Seattle up to that point. I knew what snow was, not the way that Southerners deal with it, but definitely hadn't done any snow sports. And one of the coaches... There was a, we had a big gymnasium, you know, indoor gymnasium, and he came in with a TV on a rolling cart and showed a little video of the Pocatello Nordic team, Nordic skiing, and then demonstrated roller skiing in the gym. Really? And this is Pocatello, Idaho, remember? This is a small town. The primary population is Idaho State University, not a Nordic skiing center. I was like, all right, I'm in, let's do this thing. What was cool about the gym teacher roller skiing in the gym. You know, the crazy whatever. thing, he wasn't even a gym teacher. He's a social worker. It's like so many other people that are involved in the sport, they come just from everywhere. So to get back to your question, I can't tell you what it just, it's the hook that started me. And we'll get to this when, you know, as we progress through my career, that same hook, it's just, it was still in there and it just kept pulling. And I was not good at Nordic skiing. I was so bad. My first day, I mean, there was this gradual incline, uh, the sort of thing that I would tuck up now, you know, given sufficient speed. I could not get up it. Could not. Everyone else in the group was like doing jumps. They were dicking around in the snow. And I, I spent an hour and a half trying to get up this 10 meter section. What was your build like back then? I mean, people kind of know you as, I think you're like, what, 5'9"? Yeah, roughly. Roughly. We can go look on the, you're on the wall. I know. Jesse Canori seems to think she's taller than me. We'll have to check. We'll check that. Yeah. There's been a lot of new additions to that lately, actually. And each person has been like, really, Dax that tall or not that tall? It's interesting. Some people think I'm way taller than I am. To me, I'd say you're 5'9". Yeah. And 
you're mostly quads. It's, they're definitely large legs. So yeah. were you large legged as an eighth grader? No. Really? I, I, so Nordic skiing replaced wrestling, which I did for one year in the seventh grade. I wrestled at 92 pounds. Okay. I was under five feet tall. I broke five feet in the ninth grade and I, crazy, right? I was real small and I had a brother that's five years younger than me who was taller and heavier than I was at that time. And then my... And, and the internal uh, Black Horse Von Jess wrestling matches in the house, did he take you? Uh, for a while, that's kind of another, that's a whole other thing. He used to like physically just pick on me and I was like, man... I'm just going to let this go. I'm just going to let this go. And one day, I think he hit me in the face and I picked him up and threw him across the, like across the hallway and he slammed against the wall. And my parents were like, about damn time. <laughs> and from that day forward, it's been. So, okay. All right. So you weren't like this burly. I was real little. Huh? I ran cross country my sophomore year of high school at Mountain View and was. Which is here in Bend. Here in Bend. And I was the size of some of the smaller girls on the team. When I started my senior year of high school, <clears throat> so this is two years later, like a full 24 months, I was six or seven inches taller and 80 pounds heavier. My government teacher, who was one of the football coaches, approached me second day of class, fall of my senior year, and asked why I wasn't on the football team. And I was like, I've known you my entire high school career. I'm the captain of the cross country running team. And he's like, what you run? I was like, How do you not know who I am? I see you every day. Yeah. And you have a very distinguished name. Yeah. But everything about my build changed. I started growing hair. It's, I got taller. I put on a lot of muscle. Yeah. You kind of look like, now that I think about it, like a, a running back. A little bit. A little bit. A little trimmed down running back. This is one of the funny things you brought up, Pat, earlier. I've been asking a bunch of my retired friends what their post-retirement experience was like. Every single one of them lost weight. They were all trying to keep on some muscle, especially the progression in the sport. Mm -hmm. I'm the only person I know who gained weight. I stopped. And now, granted, my last season, we pushed really hard to be lean. I think I pushed too hard. Yeah. I put on 15 pounds. So, I mean, I spent a couple of weeks in the gym with some friends lifting and not running as much and not living on a calorie restricted diet and boom, just like started to fill back out. How do you feel? Way better. That's really the key. So maybe this is your natural. Yeah, for sure. If I, fighting if I had to guess and I, when I was younger, I used to race much closer to the weight I am now, yep. which is right around 200 pounds. I used to race around a buck 90. I would shoot for that range. And I was racing much closer to 180 pounds. Pretty big swings. You're obviously a good cross country runner. Uh, when you were like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to focus a little bit more on cross country skiing. And I recall you telling me at some point that you set a goal. Maybe it was your senior year of high school that, okay, Oregon state championships. Yep. Nordic skiing is like soccer, football, like any other major sport where there's just a lot of sort of professionalization of the youth sports scene. But I remember talking to you and I thought it was really cool. It's like, yeah, that was my goal. My high school ski coach, Eric Martin, his brother was at the time involved in the Australian national biking scene in some way. And he's a 
PhD in sports something, and his dissertation was on overtraining, and he had this whole training program, and it was the first time I'd ever been introduced to structured training. So when we talk about professionalism or the professionalization of youth sports and youth athletic development, the world that our athletes are in now is so different from the world that I grew up in, and that was 15 years ago. It's not like it was a long time ago. Um, so unfortunately or fortunately in the sport of Nordic skiing, this is sort of a tangent. One of the things that I've seen watching, this is that great line from, Oh, whatever that Matthew McConaughey movie was where I get older and they stay the same age. Oh, it'll come to me. It's that's such a fantastic movie. So watching juniors, cause they don't, they don't change. They stay the same age. It's just different juniors cycling through that class. Yes, there's been a massive increase in professionalism. And I think you're seeing athletic bumps in skiers based on their professionalism and training and in kinesthetic development. But the sport of Nordic skiing is so predisposed to reward those that are and I know this is controversial, but they're genetically, they're predisposed to be good at the sport. And figuring out what that X factor is, is still, people have not wrapped their heads around it. Sure. Because this sport brings so many people from so many different skill sets, um, kinesthetically, physiologically. I mean, you see people that you look at them and you go, that is an ugly skier. And they're winning races, yeah, right. you know? Right. And then you have other people that are beautiful skiers that are also winning races. So... When you look at our junior field and you look at the kids that win races, whether they're picking up logs and running around in the woods like the old, the old Swedes did, mm -hmm. or if they are on a structured training plan with video review and significant time on snow, you still see the best kids winning. So I, I just got really lucky that in my generation, I was at a place in my development as like maturing, but also in my sports development where I was just pure raw talent, but I had the speed and the power to overcome my technical deficiencies and I could win races. So the biggest change that I made that year that I decided the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, and I was like, this is cool. I can do this. I can win this high school state championship thing was that I just committed to exercising. I'd never committed to exercising in the summer before. I mean, you skied at Dartmouth. So clearly you were recognized as, you know, whether it was your senior year that you had the aptitude to ski at that level. In interesting, actually. So I did not consider ski racing in college, my senior year of high school. It wasn't even on the map. This is, this is why this story is so interesting at this point is because winning an Oregon State High School championship was my only goal. And that was going to be the end. That was the pinnacle of my career done. I didn't know that junior nationals were a thing. I didn't know that junior worlds were a thing. Really? Oh, no concept. Even as a senior in high school? No, absolutely no concept. Hmm. So my senior year of high school, I had a core group of athletes at um, the local ski club that I was competing against. And none of them were in my high school. They were all at the other high schools. I, I was like, man, these guys are doing something and I wanna be a part of whatever they're doing. So I made a call and got myself on the club team one day a week, which is kind of absurd, but 
just one day a week. And that included going to their races that they traveled to. And I didn't know what, why they traveled when I had raced in Pocatello, we had traveled to junior national qualifiers, but it never clicked for me that it was a qualifier for something. I was just there racing for the bottom of the, I was trying not to be last. So we started traveling and the first rate race weekend in bend was a, just a disaster. It was so bad. That was where I met Ben Hughesby for the first time. Um, I was wearing a purple cow suit thing. They, MBSEF had this old purple and green splotted cow suit, not that dissimilar from the Williams suit. And it's a look. And Ben skied up and goes, sweet suit, bro. Where'd you score that swag? And that was my introduction to Ben. So that race weekend was just garbage. And the next weekend, or the next time we raced was in six inches of fresh powder. And that did not go well for me. But I qualified in one of the two races. And by the final race weekend, not only did I win everything for my age group, I won all of the races. So like the, the older juniors were racing with the J1s, and I won the distance race, and I won the sprint. And they asked me to sign a petition to go to junior nationals, petition to be on the team. And I did. And I, at the time, I was practicing for a state solo for clarinet. You are multi-talented. Well, I don't, I don't know how talented I am at music. But that was the last time that I played a clarinet. I mean, I think I played the rest of the year. But Could you bust out something right now like Mary Had a Little Lamb? Uh, if I had sheet music in front of me. That was, I was like the ski racing thing. That's the bug. That's the hook that was in there. I was like, done. I'm dropping everything else to go to junior nationals. And so I did go to the Oregon State High School. I was skiing at a high level for high school. I was winning all of the races there. And I swept all the state championships. It was like, it was a big change. And so then I went to junior nationals and qualified eighth in the sprint. And then in my quarterfinal, I actually raced against Simi Hamilton. It's funny how small the world is. Another dude with big quads. Yeah. And I, as has become sort of a legacy in my ski racing career, put my ski through a fence in the, in the finishing lanes and went down. And uh, I was so frustrated, but realized that I didn't really have any reason to be frustrated. And I was like, you know what? I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to keep doing it. So I had already applied to college at this point. The University of Washington had accepted me, direct admission to the College of Computer Science and Engineering, and a four-year internship at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab down in Pasadena. And that would have been post-graduate? No, so that would have been the summers. Oh, gotcha. And they said that most of the graduates of that program stayed on to work for NASA. And there was some negotiation back and forth between the NASA people and the University of Washington people that were like, I don't think you understand what we're offering you. And they wanted to fly me up and do a, you know, a full expense paid three day tour of campus, meet the people involved, you know, and I was like, ah, I mean, my dad lives in Seattle. I've been around the UW, like it's cool. And they were like, really? Like, what, what's your other offer? And I was like, I don't have one. And they were like, what are you talking about? Do you understand? And the computer science people were like, listen, you take this NASA thing, you work four years in college, you work an additional two to six years afterwards, you go to the private sector, you're, work, you're doing something that's cool and you're making a ton of money. Yeah. Like, nobody gets this opportunity. And my thought process was, 
You're right. Nobody wins the lottery. So this, this cannot be winning the lottery. And maybe that was dumb. Maybe it was arrogant. I don't know. But I decided to take a year totally off and just pursue the ski racing thing. So I went to Ben and I said, Ben, who, you know, now we like, he came and sat down in my room at junior nationals and we talked and he was just like trying to figure out who is this kid? And if you ask him, he had no confidence in my ability to go to world juniors or to even, I mean, to do anything as a skier. I couldn't hockey stop. Like sliding on skis was not something that I could do. I was all edges, no angles that weren't right angles, just pure power and determination. And I said, Ben, I want to go to world juniors. I don't know what this is, but I want to go. And he was like, uh okay, tell me how you want to get there. And so I wrote a couple papers, not like, you know, professional level papers, but I put my thoughts together and organized them and proofread them and then edited and presented this to Ben. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to get there based on my experience running track and field. This is how I'd like to train. And that was the birth of the 30-30 for me because that was the closest thing to track intervals that I could do on snow. Because I knew track has always leveraged metabolic trickery. So when you say 30-30, explain So that. that's 30 seconds of intense work followed by 30 seconds of no work or very minimalist work followed by 30 seconds of intense work. And now the applications of that model are all over the map. But for me, it was go as hard as you can and then ski slowly until it got to the point where I was skiing as hard as I can and then laying in the snowbank and then my watch would beep and I'd get up and go again. And that was how I, that was the peaking tool that I used to get ready for um, the qualifying races at U.S. Nationals, which were in Soldier Hollow. So it was easy to get to. But tough to race at. <laughs> tough to race at. So I started training with Ben full time and went to U.S. Nationals, was 32nd in qualifying. And the man in 31st was Ben Coons, who I wound up going to college with later. But he was the other junior, <clears throat> and I really needed him not to qualify for the senior rounds. Because if he did, that's an automatic win for the juniors, as is still the practice today. But there just weren't any juniors in those rounds. It was kind of a long sprint course, as I recall, but now it doesn't seem that long. Right. And I went on to win the junior heats over Mike Sinat, who I later went to college with. Yeah. And we went to World Juniors. So I qualified for World Juniors. And went to World Juniors, and I mean, I just, looking back on the trajectory, it's how do you go from not knowing what Junior Nationals is to barely making it to Junior Nationals to going to World Juniors the next year? I mean, I, I can't even tell you how lucky I was to hit those, those marks, especially given how rapid the, the progression was. Um, and that's a big, I mean, going to world juniors kept me in the sport for years. So that, that right there, that experience pulled me through because there's no downsides in that experience. I mean, the racing was a little bit of a disappointment, but it's only a disappointment because I started to develop expectations and went in and then wasn't for whatever reason, wasn't prepared to perform at that level. You know, there is a difference and people talk about this ad nauseum. For me, there was a difference between racing domestically and racing in Europe. I can say this now 
because I'm, I have been looking critically at my career. And this is even in the last years when I was still racing actively. Why have my international performances not been on the same level as my domestic performances? And part, certainly Ben's theory is that I show up in the U.S. and expect to win. And that must have some change in how I approach racing. It's not, you know, you never take winning for granted, but you show up knowing you can win. And so everything is revolved around putting yourself in a position then to win. And the better job you do at that, the easier it is. You don't always win. Sure. Winning is hard, always. But when the expectation becomes about performance rather than winning, there apparently, for me, there is a change in how that manifests on the race course. And can you pinpoint, you know, as you look back, like, okay, this is maybe how that manifest before I step on the starting line, like in the international level where you're, maybe you're, I don't, maybe it's a sleep thing or maybe it's how you warm up or is there any I w- blip that you can... I wish, I wish. I, I can tell you for sure that my experience at the world championships was different than any other international experience because and that's 2015 yeah in Falun I was so calm and so collected all things can certainly more than I had been other times no problem sleeping I was excited to race which I'm always excited to race in the U.S. Almost always excited to race in the U.S. I mean, I love it. I just love racing. And it helps when you're really good because you can have fun while you're racing, you know, especially as a sprinter. And maybe this experience is different for other people. But certainly if you're a really good mass start skier, when I was in college, I felt this way sometimes. You just feel in control, not necessarily of the race, but certainly of where you are in the race. And you know that at any given moment, you can do more than you're doing right then. And there are times, particularly in individual start races, where that's not the case. You're, you're controlling your output because you can't give anymore. And yeah, that's fun in its own way. But that, that experience in sprint racing in particular, where things happen so fast and you need to be in your head ahead of where the race is down the trail, but you also need to be exactly where you are in that moment because things happen that you can't predict. You can't, there are five other people around you doing the same thing you're doing. That's just, that's exciting. I love it. So I don't know where all that was going, but I can tell you that before that race in Falun, I was like calm, cool, well-composed and fired up. I mean, I was, ready to go out there and do it. And I remember standing in the starting pen, watching Alex Harvey following Matthias Strandvall across this bridge that ran behind the starting area. And Matthias was just dying. He was exploding up over this bridge. And this is the sort of bridge that like we were doing, you know, repeats up. It's not steep. It's not, the snow's a little challenging because of the sun angle and whatever, but it's, it's just not that hard. And I'm like, wow. Look at how badly he's coming apart. This guy's a good international racer. And then here comes Harvey looking totally calm, totally chill, skiing, looks like he's skiing within himself and he's catching Matias. And I go, "Uh uh-huh, there it is. That's my MO for this race. I need to be that guy, which has sort of been the MO of my whole career. And 
yeah, I made some mistakes. I definitely got a little. When you say be that guy, right? Smooth, chill, composed. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Okay. There's skiing hard and there's skiing fast. And sometimes the two are the same and sometimes they're not. And particularly with longer races with steeper climbs, we're talking sprinting still, but longer sprints with steeper climbs, for me personally, I can get really antsy and I can push really hard because it just doesn't feel like I'm doing enough. And then you get to the end of the race and you're still pushing as hard as you can, but you're going slow. Whereas if you come back and you take your time and you just do a good job of skiing fast, then when it comes time to push as hard as you can, there's a little bit there to give. It's significant. Okay, I want to take go back to the beginning here. And this is why, so I don't forget. Dakota Black Horse Von Jess. Yes. So it's hyphenated somewhere in there. And I remember like texting you or emailing a bit ago, like this was maybe a year ago. I'm like, I can't, I, I always get it wrong. I'm like, wait, is there a hyphen? Is the V capitalized? And I know this because I, I know that Alex over at Faster Skier had corrected a billion times my like Black Horse Von Jess mishaps. So how is it spelled out? And give us a little bit of just your background. Like, what is your heritage? Have you ever won a spelling bee? My spelling pinnacle it was far below, like, say, your world juniors was probably, like, in fourth grade in Miss Baldwin's classroom or Miss Pocker's. I forget. Yeah. No. Here's the reason I ask. Um, part of what helps spelling, my understanding. I know how to spell it. No, no, so part of what helps spelling bee people do well is that um, they understand the etymology of words. Okay. So Vaughn is a... Um, German honorific. Yeah. It's like sir. Yeah. In a sense. It's it's different, but um, that's the easiest comparison. Sir, the S in sir is always capitalized, and the V in Vaughn is always lowercase. Um, it's just it's an honorific. And the Vaughn is attached to Jess. And it's the only way you can know that is because you just always the Vaughn always comes first in the last name. And attached by a so for me, because my last name is hyphenated, the Von Jess stands as an independent and the Black Horse stands as an independent and the hyphen goes between. Spell that out for us. Black Horse, B-L-A-C-K-H-O-R-S-E, hyphen, V-O-N, a space, and then J-E-S-S. Gotcha. So that's where I always get confused. I'm like, well, the Von Jess is hyphenated. Right. But you would never hyphenate a Von last name ever. Okay. And what does Jess mean? That's the family name. Okay. So there's a big German family tree that has a root um, family, and then there are several branches. And I am now part of the American branch. I'm the oldest son of the oldest son of the Ooh. Von Jess. Does that like put you in line to a crown or anything like that? An honorific crown, I guess. That works. Yeah. Okay. There's no estate that I will inherit. <laughs> well, okay. in the Black Forest or whatever. But um, and then Black Horse is your mom's family name. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And what's the background with that? Her dad was half Nez Perce, and so she's. No, uh, no, he was full. She's half, so I'm a quarter. And uh, she's a very, she takes a lot of pride in her name and her background. And she was very insistent that her children would carry that forward. So it's, a, I remember when I first came across your name, I was like, that's a, 
this dude must be a badass. <laughs> uh, my mom's definitely a badass. Yeah, yeah, right. And that sort of morphed a little bit into Von Ballcap. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good story. Andrew Gardner, the, my, the first time I think I ever heard it, Andrew Gardner was announcing a race. And so context, I'm in college. It was my junior year. I had won a bunch of college races. I was sitting, I had worn the yellow jersey for the skate division for the most of the season. Could not ever beat Jurgen Uhl in classic. I was so close. Beat him in a sprint, but I don't know if that doesn't really count. Um, was second to him a couple times though. And was sitting third, I think, on the overall NCAA qualification list. And I'd had a real bad last weekend. We were in Middlebury and Ruff Patterson, my coach, told me that I wasn't going to NCAAs. And I was like, I don't, I was just in shock. You know, it's like, how can you be the second qualifier from your school? Right. Third overall and not be going. Yeah. So they had this, we, we had moved from the Nordic venue to the Alpine venue because the Alpiners were finishing their races. And then there was this celebration afterwards and they did this ski race, um, where you got to win a remote control car. And it was like a, it was a, like a team sprint, real short demo style. Like I did it in my jeans, you know, and we were so far behind when the last handoff came, that when the leaders came through, I just took off and went, and went with the leaders. And I was wearing a baseball cap, which I have for a lot, most of my career. So before that, you wore the baseball hat. Yeah, it's, that started when I was a junior. I don't really know why. It, uh, it just sort of carried on. And then it became part of my persona, so I just kept wearing it. Um, so there's Gardner on the mic with, I think, Peter Graves. And I can hear him go, a huge move from Von Ballcap. <laughs> and the entire Middlebury team tackled me and I got whitewashed and it was, it was a good time. They were pretty committed to winning that remote control car. Yeah, well that sounds, I think you, you kind of like your car toy. I do like my car toy. So did you end up going to, what happened with the, the NCAA thing that year? What, we got recycling day here in, in my part of Bend. That's glass. That's all good. It adds to the ambiance. So yeah, what happened? Did you end up going? Never went. How did that, I don't want to dig up old politics, but like what, I'm just curious, like what was the rationale behind that? Um, I mean, the rationale was that I wasn't racing fast at the end of the season. And that particular conversation comes up a lot in the modern discussion of who goes on trips, when do they go? You know, it's who's racing fast now. And so that was definitely Ruff's, uh, his rationale then was Nils Coons is racing faster than you are right now. So he's going to go. And yeah, it's all, it's in the past. I'm, I mean, Ruff and I are sure. good friends. It's, I'm never going to NCAAs was not as big a deal for me as not going to, let's say other major competition. Sure, but it, but it, it's interesting because like, you know, you're being exposed as an amateur to the reality of, and thinking here of conversations I've had with other athletes about their calculus, about how they interpret selection criteria. And do I want to ski fast that first weekend? 
or or how do you help yourself from not skiing fast you know it's like you're you're a freaking pro athlete yeah yeah it's just interesting to kind of hear you're being that's a reality before you're even on that uh where the stakes are a little bit higher as a professional and what's really interesting is that the fourth man on our team nils coons the guy that went instead of me didn't actually qualify he was one spot outside of qualification. And that was after you, generally speaking, with the way that the East certainly did qualifying back then, they would start taking qualifiers out and working their way down the list. And even so, Nils didn't reach that qualification quota. You had to take me off the list in order for him to qualify in general, but also for our team. Um, was that legal? Glenn Randall was all worked up about it. I remember sitting with him one night, the night after they told everybody. Um, so it was the next day after that little ski race. And he was like, I don't think he can do this. I don't understand why this is happening. And I was like, Glenn, it's not worth it. It's, you know, I, it, it wasn't important enough to me with all of the potential repercussions to, to fight it, you know? Um, I did what I, and this has always been part of my racing thing. You go out and you race and what happens after that is totally unrelated. I don't race to go to other races. I race to race. So you've been an athlete rep with us skiing snowboard for, for a while. Uh, this is my third year. So I'm kind of curious, like, when is it worth it? You know, not from your necessarily when the stakes involve you personally, but you're there representing athlete needs or concerns, and it is worth it to question or, you know, I'm going to say question authority, but just question the process. Yeah, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yes. The short answer is it's always worth it. As an athlete representative, I have to put aside my personal ethos when we look at objectively evaluating anything that affects athletes. So criteria are a real easy one to pick on. Um, and then I use my personal ethos in conjunction with my understanding of my constituents, I suppose, um, how they feel about things to inform the way that we approach problem resolution. So a great example would be this year, we voted to, we proposed, we the athletes proposed to put world championship and world cup selection criteria under the purview of the Nordic competition committee or the Nordic sport committee. That's a big deal because the US ski team used to develop and implement the criteria with oversight only from other members of US ski and snowboard. Now the sport committee has to approve those two criteria. They can't touch US ski team nomination and they can't touch Olympic games for legal reasons. And all of this came out of some of the legal kerfuffle from the Olympic games this winter. And right, I'm on a working group that is currently working on um, world championship selection criteria. And it's, a very interesting process to be a part of. There are a lot of stakeholders and the athletes are only one of them. And it's a very complex situation. And if you don't take into consideration where each of the parties are coming from, it's gonna be real difficult to reach 
a successful, but also a meaningful resolution. So, um, when we go back to representing athletes, um, my personal thoughts on racing. And the reason I ask the question, just to kind of, if, you know, people are like, why did it, you know, is that, you know, in that conversation you brought up with Glenn Randall, you were like, it's not worth it. Right. Right. But the stakes were kind of, you know, at least from an, collegiate athlete status at that time stakes are kind of high yeah yeah yeah. no no no, yeah so i'm like curious like how you've kind of processed this as you've become you know older and wiser and now part of advocating for people who are like hey dak it's worth it you know for me as an athlete representative the stakes are always high because i viewed nordic skiing as a very expensive hobby it was a passion, it was a pastime, but it was certainly not something I made money doing. I spent more than I made every year. You know, discounting hard goods. I've just loved doing it. And I really, really, really wanted to go to the Olympics. And that's a like a um, performance-oriented pursuit, which is challenging. Um, but that's neither here nor there. That would, that's only the way that I look at it. There are other people for whom this is a profession and there are other people for whom this is, um, a stepping stone in their careers or, you know, whatever people come from all these various points of view and they all need to be represented unless it's to the detriment of the rest of the athletic group. You know, sometimes the needs of one seriously outweigh the needs of the many. And that's part of what as an athlete rep, I think is really critical to look at. So when we design, when, as we are designing criteria, I am trying to protect athletes. And this is where my ethos comes in, protect athletes by creating a clear path to achieve success. And that is always muddied. Things never work out the way you expect them to work out. And a lot of it's really difficult to quantify because certain like point schemes create shifting landscapes. You can never, ever in a million years with, a, with in, infinite monkeys on infinite typewriters, you will never identify what the actual outcome is when you have that sort of a system. So as an athlete, how do you, how do you evaluate that and go, oh yeah, this is a good system. Uh, you can't. So all you can do is try to protect the end result, which is keeping things clean, providing ways for things to be tidy. And one of those, and this is Ruff Patterson's, this is the Ruff Patterson example, is subjective selection. If you don't have discretion, you can't fiddle with the bubble. You know, Pete Vordenberg, to quote, God, he's just so quotable. He said, don't be on the bubble. And, and Chris Grover has echoed that. Don't be on the bubble. Um, because we spend all of our time protecting the bubble athletes. And sometimes there are extraordinary circumstances. I would qualify my NCAA thing as an extraordinary circumstance. But that said, um, if we can prevent the non-extraordinary circumstances, and if we can make it very clear that there is a path that you can follow, and clearer than win races, you know, that's, that's Chris Grover's current thing is win races. And I'm like, man, that just, that isn't a reality for Nordic skiers in the U S with very few exceptions. And the exceptions are almost universally on the U S ski team at this point. If you win races, you will probably get a chance, 
but eh, if you only win some of the races, not all of the races, it becomes unclear who's deserving of that opportunity. So winning is by itself not enough. You have to win a lot. And you have to be consistently winning or very near the top consistently. You know, you don't get to go up and down. And the quality of the field, and some of this goes back to the professionalism discussion we were having earlier, the quality of the field is higher in the sense that I think the depth at the top is, it's broader. The very best are, there are more of them. And that creates greater disparity on the result sheet if someone has a bad day. You spent a decade kind of pursuing something that you were obviously super passionate about and assuming you're, you know, goal oriented, right? And this will be like a multi-part question here. Getting a perspective of an athlete who's pursued it for a long time and has had some of their goals manifest positively and some of their goals not met. Right. Like you mentioned yourself, you're like, I wanted to go to the Olympics. The basic piece of that would be, what do you feel like you could have improved upon in hindsight? And which is so hard. I feel like it's like, you know, especially when we talk about physiology piece, it's like constant moving target, it seems for most athletes, unless they're just lucky. But what would you have changed or improved upon? Like, like, like training. Nordic skiing is filled with X factors. And one of those X factors, I believe, is the total change of environment, the putting you out of your comfort zone, that if you have the resiliency that I see in most Nordic skiers, just the fight, if you want to call it that, to adapt to your new surroundings and to the inherent drive to thrive will make you a better athlete. So I didn't want to leave Bend. Um, it's my home. I've been here for a long time. Ben is my coach. It's really rare for an athlete to go start to finish through a career with one coach. And he was pretty committed to getting me to the Olympics. Do you think, I mean, you're, uh, again, this is just my, you know, my perception is that you're, you functioned as sort of a solo entity, right? No training cohorts, a couple here and there. Nick Misho was here for a year. Akio was here for a couple of years, but Akio is more of a, is a distance skier and more long and even longitudinally, you know, thinking of like the scope of your decade, you know, at a high level of skiing, were there times where you're like, okay, I need to be with a training group for a month or two or for an entire summer or, and I know, I don't think that's your MO, but yeah. Kind of flesh that out. So it's a complicated question because it's not my MO because it wasn't convenient. So I developed an isolation and there was one year in particular that I did 350 hours of base training by myself. And I did no intervals through the summer or through a you know significant chunk of the summer. And I just did base training and I had two ways of approaching it. This is sort of an aside to the story. So I would either set a distance and I would try to go ski for that length of time without having any heart rate drift. So that's where, you know, it basically gets harder. Or I would set a target and I, I used heart rate at the time. Later, I got a lactate meter that I used sort of sparingly, but, um, or I'd set a target heart rate and I would go ski at that pace for as long as I could. And those were my two workouts that I did 
all summer long with with target volumes per week. When was this? Do you remember? Yeah, uh, 2012. And so Ben and I were on this. We had this progression in mind of years-long progression of developing my aerobic system in tangent with my anaerobic system. And personally, I think one of the places we fell off was that we didn't give enough respect to my age because we always relied on my strengths really heavily and tried to develop my weaknesses. But we didn't necessarily appreciate how fast my like aerobic system was declining. And that was coming from a huge volume of anaerobic work. You know, I had really, really strongly developed anaerobic systems and strength systems. And we kind of stopped paying attention to those, which probably wasn't the best, but you know, hard to say in hindsight again. So anyway, I had these, these two workouts that I used and I only trained by myself because it was the only way that I, well, a lack of training partners, but B, it was the only way that I could really zero in on exactly what I was trying to do. I got very good at training by myself and I saw massive rewards immediately. You know, I was able to do a lot more hard training. I was able to handle it a lot better. I made it all the way through a season. And so I just sort of kept on that model and didn't ever have teammates in the winter or, you know, didn't certainly didn't have male teammates that were my peers um, in the winter. So yeah, I trained with my summer partners for sure. But, um, you know, summer training, certainly the way we did it was very different. It was developing your anaerobic, developing your aerobic systems, your base systems, um, doing some basic strength and kinesthetic training, but, you know, it's not, it wasn't race simulation. It wasn't speed work. It's not the stuff that someone in my position would have benefited from being with partners necessarily. And there were some people that I believe were, would have been interested in helping me develop as an athlete, you know, but I came from a really, I don't see it as an insular program, but I think other people certainly do. And in hindsight, it is, it was pretty insular because it was just Ben and I really, I mean, Scott Johnston from the Metal Valley was a big part of it. And there have been other athletes that I've been teammates with like Sam Naney that were always um, really important to me, but they weren't, we, we just didn't get together enough. So that's the, that's the training partner thing. You know, I, I would, if my base model for life had, was different, if it wasn't working here in Bend, living here in Bend, being sort of anchored here, um, if I was more free floating or transient, I don't know how you want to describe that, but less attached, um, I would have traveled a lot more. I would have gone to see other clubs, train with other clubs, maybe even move to another club. But I didn't. And I've, I actually have no regrets about the way that I did it. You know, I'm really happy with my life. I'm really happy with the life that I've led up to this point. And a tangible change in my race results would not necessarily lead to a ch- tangible change in my life happiness. So definitely no regrets about anything I've done. But if I was going to change something, I would have quit my job. What are you, what are you most proud of from your racing? Oh, honestly, I think the thing that ski racing has given me 
or that I've taken from it, I don't know which is which, um, is personal development. I, and I mean, who knows, maybe people that know me will say differently, but I feel like I, through the pursuit of excellence in sport, have had to shed ego in a lot of ways. Not always, of course, but in a lot of ways. And well, what I mean by that is that in any given moment, and this has definitely been true in my professional dealings, um, stepping back from your personal connection with things so you can objectively or as close to objectively as you can, identify the situation that you're in and what the best possible outcome is, what the needs are of all the parties, etc. cetera. Um, that's something that I've seen people struggle with. And the reason that I think that ski racing has given me that is because, as we talked about earlier, without a real open and ego-free platform to view yourself and and to understand what other people are saying to you about you because sometimes it's not very comfortable when someone approaches you and says listen i think your racing is not as good as it could be because you're racing really insecure you're racing scared that's not an easy thing to hear you know and certainly at the time it was like what are you talking about and so a decade later, now when someone says something, I try certainly um, to evaluate where they're coming from because obviously if I don't see it, my own experience has not shown it to me. So if someone else is seeing it, <clears throat> they're seeing something that I'm not. And being able to appreciate what they're saying and not just appreciate it and like, oh, this is meaningful to me, thank you so much, but actually internalize it and make it applicable to what you do that has been instrumental in everything in my life from personal relationships to professional dealings to even how I improve, like let's say riding my bike or rock climbing, you know? So that that's part one of that part two of the personal development thing has really been appreciating life. And it's, I don't know that this is something I've ever lacked, but it's certainly been made very clear to me that, I was doing what I was doing because I loved doing it. <clears throat> and the day that I stopped loving doing it was the day it was time to be done. And I don't know that I ever stopped loving ski racing. Um, I, there's only one race in my life that I remember not wanting to start. And, and I did anyway. Where, where was that? <laughs> it was in Houghton, Michigan, the year after um, I won both of the races. And I still wound up on the podium. I was second almost won that race. And I just, I remember standing in the starting area before the semifinals going, I would really just rather go home. And I, you know, there was a whole lot to that, but, um, you know, it's where I was mentally. It's where I was physiologically. It was, there was a whole bunch of pieces to it, but, um, yeah, that was a tough one. Uh, one of the questions Pat wrote down here, that, that, that. He wrote this, and I'm sure he wouldn't be sad that I'm reading this here. I think it's refreshing to hear that the perspective from someone who's committed a decade of their life to this pursuit and probably wouldn't have changed a single thing about it. Absolutely. it's You can always look at something 
that you've done some, some progression, right. And look at tweaking some part of it and have a different outcome. That's an outcome based analysis. And yeah, we're in sport and yeah, we're professionals in the sense that we do actually get paid. And this is a career for a lot of people and performance is how we measure ourselves as athletes. There's no question about that. So in that sense, it is an outcome oriented pursuit, but this is life. And every day, whatever it is you're doing, that's part of your life. You can't undo it. And knowing that makes me believe that you should make it something you want to do. And so that's what I've done. And yes, you always, everybody makes trade-offs where they're like, man, I don't really want to be doing this right now, but this is part of something that's coming down the road. And as long as you enjoy the process, which by and large, I really did. Um, I think you're doing it right. Okay. Thank you. Totally. Appreciate it. You're still recording. Yeah, I'm recording. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation. 